everybody. <laughs> welcome. Hi there, everyone. My name is Claire Lim and welcome to the first Scotland session in partnership with Screen Scotland. This series of online events will celebrate some of the nominees from the BAFTA Scotland Awards taking place on Saturday, the 20th of November. Today's session is part of BAFTA's Learning, Inclusion and Talent Development Programme, which aims to inspire industry practitioners, emerging talent and the public through sharing craft insights, championing underrepresented voices and exploring key issues facing our industry. Now, if you'd like to catch up on any of the previous events, please head on over to BAFTA Guru YouTube channel. Yes, go over there and also check out the BAFTA SoundCloud page. So without further ado, shall we start our session? I'm very excited. So please welcome our speakers. I'd like to welcome, first of all, Neil McPhillips, who's here for Murder Mystery Machine. We have Henry Pullen here to talk about fogs and Thomas Methvan here for Solas 128. Very exciting indeed. Hi guys, how are you all? Y'all okay? Great. Good. Good to see you. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, first of all, I wanted to ask all of you how it feels to be nominated. Thomas, if you would like to answer that first. Uh, I'm not entirely convinced it's uh, sunk in yet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ex excited, but not quite believing it yet. And what about you, Henry? Um, yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. It's, uh, it's been pretty great, to be honest. And uh, finally, Neil, what did you, well, how did you feel when you found out, actually? Did you do a wee, do you, do a wee squeal? Did you jump? Um, not quite, but close. You know, we're, uh, it was a pretty big deal in the studio. Everyone's pretty happy with it, so it was nice. Well, congratulations, everybody. I'm very, very happy for all of you. I wanted to ask you about working in Scotland and what you love the most, firstly, about working in Scotland. Uh, Neil, if you'd like to answer that first. Sure. Um, there's a good community here. You know, I, I in my career, I worked, I worked in England for probably more than half of my career and then moved back up to Scotland. I started in Scotland, left and came back. Um, and I was really excited to come back because... I've seen the industry grow more here. It's starting to become um, much more prominent. It's not just Rockstar and Aberty. It's it's starting to become more. So it was nice to kind of come back and be part of that. So yeah, I really enjoy it. Cool. And what about you, Henry? What is it you enjoy about working in Scotland? I guess for a start, it's where I've just always been, really. But um, I think I would I would I would mirror what uh, Neil was saying. I think that like we've. I don't have anything to compare it to, but I have. We've found ourselves a really nice community around where we are, and uh, it's been really nice to get involved with people who aren't just in games as well. Um, there's just a, quite a lot going on, um, which has been very nice to take part in. Thomas, would you agree with that about the community aspect of working in Scotland? Yeah, no, absolutely. I came up here uh, to study for university, and in the nicest possible way, just ended up getting stuck here because I liked the people who were here and then when I moved back into doing games part-time there was such a really nice welcoming community in Edinburgh where I am just to kind of work with and organize events with and it's really welcoming to kind of not just developers but people from other disciplines in as well which I always find really really super exciting because I I tend to like working with not programmers because uh that's I do that bit and I quite like working with other people who have complementary skills that I'm absolutely rubbish at so it's really <laughs> exciting 
Um, before we talk about your games, I wanted to find out about each of your own personal journeys into this world, into the strange little industry you find yourself in now. Henry, how did you make your start and how did you get to be where you are now? Um, well, I, I started out when I was in um, when I was in high school, actually. I uh, came across the idea that um, all those list of names that appear at the end of games aren't just made up and actual people do this for a job and that's a thing you can do. And so from that moment, I was like, oh, maybe I should give this a go. <laughs> um, so I, I just sort of was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll start paying attention in maths and I'll uh, um, try and go to university. And then, then from there, um, so I went to Abertay and um, met a few people there who, who just had very similar interests and uh, very similar ideas of what we wanted to do. And we thought, hey, we can give this making games thing a, a shot. And um, so we just dove, dove head first into it uh, straight out of university. What about you, Neil? Similar journey or how did you get here and, and on this call talking about being a nominee? Uh, somewhat similar, although I didn't care about maths. Um, so I, no. I mean, <laughs> I've been, I mean, I've been working in the industry for over 20 years now. And when I started out, there wasn't courses like there are in Aberty and, um, all over the, the country, you know, so it was kind of before that, but I, um, I got into games because there was a studio near my high school that was looking for playtesters. So I started like playtesting N64 games for them and then moved, basically like managed to get myself a job at that studio and then just like learned from there and then from that just kind of bounced around I was kind of just following work so I, was, I moved to Newcastle to work for Midway and moved down to Liverpool to work for PlayStation for like seven years and then moved back up here to work for Channel 4 and then transitioned to Blazing Griffin and it's just kind of I've been in different positions all over the place and done all these different things and you know it's always just it's just a great industry to be part of it's just a fun journey. It sounds like quite a journey as well you've been all over the place yeah. <laughs> so many jobs and finally, Thomas, what about you? Did you start when you were very young thinking, I want my name in the credits as well, like what Henry said, or how did you feel? So I, I actually started when I was like really young, when I was four or five, because we had a Commodore 64 in our house. So I really loved just programming on that and making stuff appear. Um, but I had a very weird route to get here because I was doing that. But then I went to university to study, thinking I was always going to go into games. But when I graduated, it was just after the financial crash, and I basically couldn't get a job anywhere. So I ended up being distracted and offered a PhD. Uh, so I went off for kind of four or five years to go do this. But throughout the entire time, kind of making games and creating this sort of stuff was always a splinter in my head. So I was always kind of doing it secretly along the sides. But when I started really getting engaged with the Edinburgh community again, I kind of realized that actually I liked sharing the stuff with people and that's what kind of dragged me into kind of back into game jams and making stuff for other people to play rather than just as a hobby for myself and um, basically game jams are what got me here so it was what ended up making me want to make kind of bigger projects so it's been it's been a very weird sinusoidal route to get here I suspect which is quite common for uh, a lot of the smaller indie devs I suspect when we're oh. all over the place. Now you're all here and we're talking about BAFTA stuff, which is quite incredible. So you've all done so well. Um, I've played all of your games um, and I think they're each game so different, but each game, they're just a wonderful, unique world that you've created for each of your games. Uh, really engaging. Uh, but And so I know what the games are about, but we have to explain a little bit more for those watching along. 
Um, let's start with uh, Neil. Please tell us about Murder Mystery Machine. Tell me what the game is about, what to expect from the game. Sure. So, um, Blazing Griffin is a company, uh, our studio. We're we're kind of unique in that we make film and TV, and we do like post production for film and TV, and we also make games. So, um, this project was an attempt and and kind of the start of something we're always trying to do, which is kind of merge those those things. Um, so we wanted to. The game was first released on Apple Arcade, which is a subscription service, and the idea was to release an episode and treat it like a TV series. So there's like eight episodes of like a TV season. Um, so this this is like season one basically, and we worked with film and TV writers from our that our film team hooked us up with, and we kind of crafted like this eight episode arc of this detective story about two detectives that um, kind of come across a case that seems disconnected and then you kind of go through all these episodes and all this other stuff starts to kind of come out and what we were trying to do is try and try to tell uh, I guess a non-standard game story like we wanted to do something that you'd see more in like an FX or HBO kind of tv series than you would in a game a standard it's like it's a game about a political scandal which doesn't sound like the most exciting thing to play necessarily but um we just really like the idea of being able to take like eight episodes to flesh out characters in a world and just make this much larger thing so you get all these different cases that interconnect and then kind of form up this large kind of conclusion at the end and we got to do that episodically with apple for for a year and then we kind of put it onto the other platforms uh so like the kind of season one has now been released onto like xbox playstation switch and pc and mac and everything at this point so I'm going to ask you more about uh, Murder Mystery Machine in a second, but I just wanted to ask Henry. Henry, Fogs is so cute and so wonderful and quite frustrating at times. Um, tell everybody at home what the game is about because they might not know, they might not have played it yet. Um, well, Fogs is uh, a game uh, about going on a, an adventure as a double-ended dog um, through three... Um, weird and wacky worlds of uh they're all themed around um things that dogs love like uh food play and sleep um the the basic idea is that you it's either cooperative with someone else or the two halves of your brain um in order to navigate these two uh two ends of this creature that's connected by a wobbly stretchy body um you can uh the aim of the game is to move around and uh, try and solve these little puzzles and help help all these little creatures that you come across along along your way. It sounds bonkers, but guys at home, it is so addictive. <laughs> like so, and I've just played with two halves of my brain, and they don't work together. So I'm just just saying that right now. Um, Thomas, uh, Solas One Two Eight is wonderful. Um, please tell everyone at home, and and c quite difficult as well in terms of a puzzle game. Please tell everybody at home what that's about. Uh, so yeah, Solace One to Eight is the how we normally pitch it is it's an interconnected ribbon-based um, laser deflection game, which is lots of buzzwords. But what it really is is it's kind of taking games I used to play where you use mirrors to direct lasers, and I wanted to just really explore that and make it into this much more modern, interesting thing. So you are basically called into this slightly esoteric neon world because some external force has been damaging it and that force follows you throughout the game 
getting more and more powerful and doing weirder and weirder things to the game and the systems itself. And your job is to basically rewire this huge interconnected space to try and both figure out what's going on and learn kind of the rules in the world and move around it. And what's the bit I'm most proud of is the entire game, every single puzzle is interconnected into this one huge world. There's somewhere around 180 puzzles. And later on, we start doing really weird things with like lasers leaving areas and coming into different areas. And as you say, it gets a bit hard, but um, I, the whole idea was to kind of really explore what you could do with a few relatively simple systems and how kind of much complexity and interesting design you could build around there. And it was also all designed to be about merging and splitting colors, but designed from the ground up to be accessible to anyone with color blindness. Um, and that kind of design ethos then became uh, baked into all the visuals of the game. So it was really nice to start from that and start to like start with accessibility and then have it actually become part of the game's identity uh, at a higher level. Um, yeah, it's it's very it's weird and a bit esoteric, but it's it's uh, hopefully makes sense when you play it. Or brain melting is is <laughs> in a in a wonderful way because I'm I'm a bit of a puzzle addict, so uh, I it is again it's got that kind of is the rhythm and the music. We'll talk about that after actually. Uh, we'll get right into that because I want to talk about the music element and things. Um, Neil, um, I wanted to ask you about creating a game like Murder Mystery Machine. I grew up on point and click type games like on the PC, like uh, the Blade Runner game from the nineties because I'm a massive sci-fi nerd and I love Blade Runner. Um, and I, what I felt from Murder Mystery Machine, it was a lot more than just a point and click game, which is what you so eloquently said earlier. You know, you've got this episodic kind of vibe. Um, how do you go about weaving a world like this together and keep on top of the plot at the same time and everything else? How do you even start? You know, I'd love to be uh, one of those people that comes out and says, well, here's how we did it. Uh, <laughs> and here's the step-by-step -step plan of how you, everyone else can do it. But the reality is, like, I'm sure the other guys or anyone else that works in games will know that you kind of just make stuff up as you go. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> you kind of, it's, it's like constant problem solving. You know, we had, a, we had an idea of a story and then you start to get further into it and you start to kind of we had some interesting challenges with with our writers because they were tv writers and they don't know about non-linear storytelling and they want to just tell a story but we have to put gameplay into that and we have to let the player discover uh, how the story kind of develops and all these kind of bits and pieces so like trying to weave that together was just like a constant headache <laughs> um but like a constant challenge and a good challenge um you know we got to the end of each episode and kind of then had to sit and look at this big whiteboard of like, okay, where, where does that leave us? Where's this character? Where do we go from here? Um, much the same as TV writers would, I would imagine, but with the extra kind of complexity of why is this fun to go through? Why is this not just a big cutscene? How do we add actual story and depth? And how do we get this information to come out without just cutting to a camera of someone else talking and explaining it? You know, you have to kind of do that. Like we set out rules in our detective games. We try and have a rule, which is, the player can't know more than the character and the character can't know more than the player. So to be able to progress with that, you have to stick with that rule and it's, it's challenging, you know, it's really challenging, but it's fun. What did you learn from that process and what did the writers learn from the process of doing it the other way around, do you think? I think it's, you know, there's a real skill in it. Um, it's not just something that, like games writing, I think for years was something that was fairly like underappreciated 
the complexity of games writing and the challenge of games writing that a lot of people were just kind of like one of the designers will write the game it's fine or like someone that's worked in tv can just transition over and do it and it's not it's really not like you need there's a specific skill set that's required to be able to kind of balance all those things like if you want information to come out you have to get the player to discover that information and you have to put the pieces and work backwards there's a lot of working backwards you know you start with how you want it to end and you're like okay how do we go from there to there to there um i always really liked um on breaking bad they always say that, like they use the whole buffalo you know like that was their whole thing like any character was okay we've, we've added a character to the world they can be used to solve a problem later we can't just invent something that solves a problem later like we have to use something that's already on the board and we were trying to do that as much as possible like we can't just invent something to solve all our problems we want to use things that already exist and kind of give closure to as much as possible oh it's that's a lot of layers to take in yeah it's a lot of layers but the end product's fantastic absolutely fantastic um henry you've described fogs um it's such a weird little game uh tells where did you get the idea of a puzzle game but solved by double-ended dogs <laughs> like where did this sort of strange but also weirdly cute idea come from um i think we when we set out to um create fogs we um i mean we locked ourselves in a really small room and we we're like let's come up with a game idea um and then out of that we just said the word dog sports um which uh somehow evolved into dog golf which was just a, a perhaps even weirder idea that we had that was half half golfer half dog and when the golfer would hit the ball the dog would run after it but then we realized that that was just a joke not a game um so <laughs> then we thought okay well what if what if it was both ends were a dog and instead of playing sports because um that a lot a lot of those kind of ideas have been done already like we, they've been explored and um we thought we wanted to try something slightly different and go more of like a puzzle like adventure route um and we just kind of thought it would be cool to have this hey here's a co-op focused game um that is like we're tying the players together both um in the game by like literally tying them together and in real life by saying hey you can share a controller to play this game so um that was kind of where the whole thing spawned from and then from there we just went once we had the idea of this weird dog creature and started playing around with it a lot a lot of the rest of it just sort of fell into place it was very easy to come up with a lot of just crazy ideas for <laughs> like neil mentioned henry uh you know understanding where you want to go and then working back from there would you say that that's sort of similar to how you guys were working with the puzzles or did you just sort of work it out as you worked it out um i think i think we we were kind of the i think we were like okay we're here where can we go um we were the the other way around i think with a lot of the the puzzles and stuff it was it was really a case of us coming together and going hey how can we surprise someone with how um this this is so like the um the idea that if you grab onto a hose pipe with one end of the dog then the water comes out the other end of the dog <laughs> is um is one of the the first things that we came up with that was like this is just so bizarre 
and then we just from there we're like okay well what can we do next how can we twist this again um and just try to really like push the ideas and like explore each each like individual idea as much as we could um yeah thomas solace one three is a really beautiful looking game and a beautiful sounding game as well um the music the puzzles is very intriguing as well the way you're sort of thrust into that world and you just have to go for it you've got the, the sort of synth wave beats in the background so tell me where do you start with this do you go right i've got this idea it's synth wavy it's kind of 80s early 90s or do you start with the puzzles or the design where do you start creating this world so solace one twice is a bit weird because i this is not the first try time i've tried to make this game it's depending how many, depending what you call a game, it's probably the third time I've tried to make it. And I tried to make it about 10 years ago in Flash and I, I couldn't make it fun. I couldn't make it interesting. I couldn't make it kind of work. And I thought it was, oh, the base game idea just doesn't work. And then I was actually at a game jam where I met the two people I collaborated with, a sound designer and a musician. And we made this really weird kind of anti-Tetris where the idea was to, basically lose the game rather than win it so instead of matching colors you're trying to avoid matching colors and that was very rhythm based very inspired by stuff like voluminous and res and tetris effect sort of games and it was after that i went home and i had a sleep because you know i'd not slept for 48 hours and then i woke up going oh hang on the reason the game didn't work was because of the rhythm element wasn't there so i reached out to them and basically said look i've got this really weird puzzle game idea i don't think it's going to work but do you want to make some music and see and then the second we kind of got the music in, uh, that kind of then started this really interesting cyclical thing where you'd get a little bit of the sample of music and I would go, oh, that's quite synth wavy. And the previous game we'd done, I'd played around a lot with kind of, as a shortcut to making it look really purposeful in the design. I played around with like, I had 48 hours, I couldn't do much graphical stuff. So I'll throw Bloom on it and I'll make Bloom really, really over the top to make it really neon and look like that was just, my purpose not because i was hiding anything and then it became this kind of um symbiotic thing where the music was getting more synth wave so then the visuals became more synth wave to match and then this style just kind of map fitted together and because a lot of the game is about timing and trying to get these separate pulses to hit each other avoid each other the music then became a really important tool to communicate the gameplay mechanics to the players right so the game works in four four time it runs 120 beats per minute you don't have to know that as a player, but you know how music works. So you immediately get, oh, all this stuff's moving to the beat. So now I get what will happen if like, when it hits a mirror, it's kind of like it's hitting a drum or hitting a cymbal. So I get that's all happening on time. And that's how kind of the style came about. Well, that and the fact I can't 3D model. So I basically made a rule for myself. I was only going to do stuff in engine. It's all made out of squares in engine. Um, and it was kind of, most of it was loads of limitations to make it look purposeful that I didn't quite know what I was doing when I started out. And then once you fake, faked it enough, then it becomes like the design, right? He's like, I didn't know what I was doing. So I made all these choices and then they look really purposeful at the end. And it came into this really cohesive world, which was really nice. Um, but it was a bit, it was very odd to start out because for the first three months, I just didn't even know it was going to be fun. And then there was just a moment when I realized when I was starting to move the mirrors around, oh, this is really fun and it sounds really good. And then I got really, really excited and started thinking what other twists on the mechanic of it, like Henry was saying, like, 
what can I do that will interact with this world in slightly more weird and interesting ways? But it ended up not having that many elements, but then the possibility space of what you could do with them was so huge. What started out as a three month project ended up taking 18 months because I just kept going, oh, what if I did this? What if these two things interacted <laughs> in this way? Or what if this thing interacted in this way at this different time? Um, so yeah, it got a bit out of hand, honestly, very, very quickly. <laughs> I mean, the, the, again, each one of you, the results are incredible. And I think the music element is, I mean, are you, I can't imagine it to drum and bass. Let's put it that way. It would probably give me a small stroke, <laughs> like playing that game, drum and bass or metal. Was it always going to be synthwave? Is that the kind of music that influenced you growing up or did it just organically go that way? So partly it was because I, I listened to quite a lot of it when I was developing because it's quite a nice thing to develop to because it's not, too lyrical so it doesn't distract my brain but partly because i knew i was going to be referencing kind of 80s games like deflector and things like that and also it was supposed to be kind of this old machine that was a bit out of time that wasn't meant to necessarily kind of have a time period and all the vaporwave stuff it's kind of inspired by the 80s but it isn't the 80s it's kind of this weird false memory of it so it just kind of really seemed to fit the the slightly kind of sinister, slightly weird, slightly kind of abstract world we were going for. And then uh, when I started hearing stuff from James and you did the music, I was just like, oh, this is really good. This is the sort of stuff I would listen to. And it also means that the beat is really kind of at the front. So it's really kind of uh, present for the player. So they get it really quickly. So it's kind of like a few different influences. And we played around with a lot of different tracks because a lot of them just, as you said, didn't with drum and bass didn't work when we first tried them. Like we tried putting them on, I was like, oh, I hate this. It just doesn't work with the game. So yeah. there was lots of, there's lots of music on the cutting room floor, I think. Well, it, uh, what you end up with is brilliant. Um, I wanted to ask all of you because all of your games have this puzzle element. Um, I love puzzle games, I love them, but were you guys big into puzzle games growing up? Neil, what kind of games did you grow up with? And are there any puzzle games that stand out that you were really into when you were uh, starting your video game journey? Yeah, um, I think probably the first most memorable puzzle game that I was obsessed with was Myst. Um, oh yes, and Riven as well. Riven. Yes. Yeah, oh, which yeah. Uh, huge highlights um, in my, my history. I just bought uh, Myst for the Oculus Quest like last week. So I'll put up with the sickness for that, but um, yeah. I could never, I mean, don't get me wrong, like I was far too young to, to be able to play that game and it was the days before the internet. So like you just walked around the same like five scenes hoping that you could work out what like switch the flick or whatever. But that and like, I was obsessed with point and click games, you know, like um, Beneath the Steel Sky and like Monkey Island and all those kind of games, like all the LucasArts stuff. Like I just absolutely loved all of that stuff as a kid. Those days were, um, I think it was Riven. My brother and I played Riven. So we played Myst. We played Riven and we just bought the big solutions book. <laughs> from, from we, we just looked through it because we were so young and I was like, yeah, just do that, just do that. It's actually, those games are extremely difficult when you go back and you still play them now. Do you find that when you go back, they're not that simple? Yeah, no, I, I genuinely thought like when I play play this now as an adult, like it'll be a cakewalk, you know, like I just was too stupid as a kid to really grasp any of this. <laughs> not really, like it's, it's still like pretty abstract and still pretty hard. Um like a lot of those games back in the day were like super abstract. Like all the puzzles for like point and click games back in the day were just like, you know, connect this with this and, you know, rubber chicken and a pulley and that'll, that'll kind of make sense. And it, it, it doesn't, and it still nope. doesn't. 
No, no. I tried playing uh, Riven again on stream, and there's a lot of swearing and frustration, <laughs> so I ended up rage quitting it. But yeah, I love those games. Love those games. What about you, um, Henry? Did you grow up with any puzzle games? What kind of stuff did you grow up uh, playing? And I, when I was uh, when I was younger, I absolutely had no patience for puzzle games. I oh. uh, was <laughs> um, <laughs> I was too too distracted by everything else. I was like, oh, there's I could sit and think about things, or I could play this uh, really flashy thing where I'm just running around all the time. Let's go this way, please. Um, <laughs> but I mean, like it, they they've always been in the background because uh, my dad is a huge fan of puzzle games, and I think. Mist is probably his favorite series and all this sort of stuff. But um, I think when I when I like got to like university and um, I kind of started playing through like puzzle games with groups of people, which was uh, just like a really fun experience to just like not be bashing your head against like the screen, being like, "Why can't I figure this out?" But like actually having people around to like. Be like, oh, what if we try this thing? What if we try this thing? Like, it just having those people to bounce off, I think, was uh, kind of lent me more towards the the genre a bit. And I definitely, I definitely have a lot more patience for them now. And what about you, Thomas? What did you grow up playing? Any puzzle games in your repertoire? Uh so I, I guess I'm somewhere between Neil and Henry. Like, so there's two games I've genuinely ever been good at, and that was Quake Free and Tetris which are so opposite ends of the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, when I was younger, I kind of, I always thought I didn't have patience for these games, but then I think back and I used to play like Deflector on the C64 and I played so many flash puzzle games in particular that I now think back on. And I would never think that I was really into them back in the day, but I remember when I played so many of them and I played loads of point and click adventure games as well. Um, and I also got really, really into the Synesthesic games, like as I said, Luminous and ones like that. And I suspect I'm one of the four people who actually played Uru online when it was actually online because I love that series so much. In fact, hey, we've got hey, two of we've, we've got fifty percent of them. Yeah, <laughs> probably playing with you. Yeah, we probably know each other. Because I've I played that in a few different iterations because I really like adore the Miss series, um, and I like I really like the way that they communicated how the puzzles worked in that game through a lot of kind of symbology and things like that, and. Uh, the Witness was a big inspiration more recently from that design of how do you design puzzles that people have, can learn without telling, like tutorializing them? Because I really hate in puzzle games, like the, the Zelda thing where something pops up when you thought about it for two minutes and says, have you tried pressing the button? You're like, yeah, I'm getting to that. Like I was just looking at the space. So I, um, so it kind of, yeah, lots of puzzle games from all different areas and just lots of different kind of genres, I guess, that really inspired me because I think the best puzzle games pull from lots of different genres because um, I'm not such a fan of like the puzzles where it's just you get a single screen puzzle and then you move on to the next puzzle. I like ones that have something else or that something kind of links them together, um, which I suspect all of our puzzle style games here are much more in that kind of genre. Yeah, I think you guys have done a really good job, each one of you in a very different way at world building around the puzzles, even though each of your games looks completely different, you know? Um, so I, I kind of, I like that element of puzzle, uh, puzzle worlds and puzzle building and, uh, and, and sorry, world building in puzzles and puzzle games. Um, tell me about, in terms of tests, right? So Neil, you got the game almost ready to go, right? You're almost at that stage. 
how many tests do you go through to make sure it is watertight when you are uh, testing specifically murder mystery machine like when do you know it's ready to sign off so murder mystery in the first first kind of iteration when it was for apple arcade we had to support every single apple device that was released since 2012 um so that was like iphones ipads macs like macbooks apple tvs all that kind of stuff so there was like the technical side of things which was it has to run well on all of these devices and then there's just the pure gameplay side of things which is like the game has to actually work um that was and then we were releasing them every couple of months as well there was like a new episode coming out so you just have to kind of go back over that whole thing um that was horrendous like there's just no getting around that that was like an absolutely horrendous process like doing it the most recently ones just doing it on like an xbox a playstation a switch was just like a dream come true like there's so much you have to do like qa is like the most underappreciated um aspect of games dev and no one appreciates it until you're in the last like two months and you're just you have if you've got a good qa person like it's it's just, like the, the greatest savior of your project uh, what about you, Henry? Any moments where you're like, oh, any mistakes that you you recognize the last minute? I always wonder these th- things with puzzle games like that, the detail, anything that you noticed you're, that held you back, that kind of thing. We all, all, anytime we look back, we're like, oh, there's that little, there's that little bit there. Really? It's oh, like, no. It's just, it's <laughs> like the most minor thing that is just like, that we we missed i mean to be honest like we so we worked with our publisher coat sync who um they sort of had uh qa people working with us for almost the entire development which is very very useful because we are just three idiots trying to have a go at this so um yeah i think we i mean we just had it constantly like people running through it and making sure that um making sure that it all worked like we i mean we were so we were kind of delivering milestones to them monthly they were giving us feedback so we were getting you know testing the puzzles on the the people over there but then they also had people actually making sure it worked and stuff as well so it was it was a it was very very useful for us to have that absolutely and thomas do you i mean that's interesting that henry said because it's art at the end of the day you know video games are art and I draw myself or I play guitar. There's always something you notice, something. Are you like that as well, Thomas? Were you, were you looking at it and go, oh, God, oh, no. Have you ever done that in the last sort of, well, when it's got released? Uh, not so much when it got released, but we had a few different Q&A phases. And uh, so we got a publisher about halfway through. And so for the first phase, we actually took it out to like a local Edinburgh college and got people to play it. And there was such a huge bug in it because people could solve a certain puzzle without learning uh, a certain technique and then what happened is then five or six screens later because they'd not learned that technique they just got completely stuck um so it was really interesting because uh i was always designing puzzles to make sure they worked but i wasn't designing puzzles to make sure that there weren't much easier solutions built in when i started and that was my biggest challenge but we were quite lucky that when we did get a publisher, we had a couple of really great internal QA people, one of whom was probably the biggest fan of the game and who within about two weeks became just so much better at the game than I was. He kept sending these solutions where I'm like, oh yeah, if you use these five screens and shoot things like through 
17 different screens you can shortcut this puzzle and they're going I didn't even know that piece could do that <laughs> and then it became this really interesting concept of like how much do you block and how much do you leave for players to discover um the biggest <laughs> the biggest thing I'm really glad we caught though is there was a sequence of puzzles that was quite in the middle of the game and players kept telling me one player in particular a friend of mine kept saying like this is much harder than you think it is and I didn't believe them and then I saw a few people like play a beta and I was like, oh, okay, this is really hard. And now to give you an idea of how glad I moved, it's now the hardest puzzle in the entire game. It's about 10 hours later than it was. And it's so hard when you're designing puzzles as the puzzle designer to know how difficult the puzzles are because you know the solution and you, it's really obvious, but there's all these other things that relate to the puzzle difficulty, like how much possibility there's space there is and what people have learned up to there that's really difficult to, really difficult to tell. So there's actually very little I look back on. There's a couple of bits I look back on, I would change that. But there's also quite a lot of compromises I made from beta testing that I hated at the time. Like I really tried to stop happening, but now I'm really glad happened. So things like the hint system I didn't want at the time. Um, but now if I was to do it again, I would make the hint system a lot kinder and a lot actually more generous than it was. So it's the whole thing is this like interesting learning process where you're sort of figuring out how much is you as a designer being really kind of up yourself and thinking no no i know how this puzzle should work versus how much you take the player's feedback because sometimes it's really useful and sometimes it's shall we say unkind yes. with games being gamers so it's a bit like it, i found that the most difficult thing with doing the q a is like putting my pride aside and trying to listen to people without just being really grumpy that they didn't like the thing I was making <laughs> <laughs> that's fair that's fair which is a good thing because I know what you I know what you mean I think people online especially uh gamers like to give their tuppence worth let's put it that way in a, in a kind polite way um in the last year I mean you know as everybody knows the the landscape of which we have worked and had to adapt has completely changed you know, we're sitting here on a, a video call, you know, instead of a live panel, for example. And I wanted to ask um, how you think the changes made in the last 18 months or what changes have been made in the film, TV and games industry in Scotland going forward? How will that affect your work? Neil, any changes that have been made in the last sort of 18 months or so that you're going to have to go forward and adapt to and keep adapting to? I mean, the biggest thing for us probably was the... Um we started remote hires you know like that was something we hadn't really considered we were quite caught up in um i guess having like a, a studio vibe and an atmosphere and like this is the culture we want and this is you know everyone kind of comes in the office and we're social and it's it's nice and then this happened and everyone was just at home and it didn't really matter where you were and some people said you know actually like this is much easier i don't want the commute i've you know i've got kids i want to be able to adjust my life around that so now we're we're like completely flexy on on you know people can kind of come and go as, as long as you're getting your work done it doesn't really matter um we've hired people in dundee and belfast and like down south and it, it's going to change things quite a lot for us in terms of you know where we're looking we we still you know for hiring juniors we still look for that locally because it's nice for them to to have the support network of the the studio but certainly like we can kind of go a bit further afield for for people now and we don't have to ask someone to relocate to glasgow which is not always someone's you know ideal place to live um so it, it's you know it's completely changed things for that from that for our point of view i don't think it's really had any it's not had any huge negative there's there's certain 
logistical things that we have to worry about, but that's like a, a problem to solve. I think it's it's made people happier to have that flexibility ultimately. Do you agree with that, Henry? Do you think mental health wise, in, in the way that you guys work, it's just that sort of flexible way of working is actually in the long run better? Yeah, I think it, I mean, so before the, the um, pandemic anyway, we were doing sort of partial remote um, anyway. So we, you know, one, one of us sort of moved away from Dundee. So we had two of us in, in an office and uh, one of us remote. So we had that, we kind of already had that in place. So the actual um, pandemic didn't hit us that, that much. Um, but I think we kind of uh, have like started to realize like how much, because it is just the three of us like in the, that are, you know, designing the games and like, it is so much harder to um, maintain that kind of like the energy that we work well off, which is just sort of saying absolute nonsense to each other until something sticks. Um, it is so much harder to do that in um, over a call. Um, like we have, you know, started uh, working in person again a bit more, um, but uh, and it's it's made such a difference to us being able to just design silly things. But I think, uh, I mean, overall, it's it has been really good to just kind of shine a light on how much better it is to be flexible. Um, like it's so nice that like we are we are able to like just say I want to work from home today, and that is you know that's just a, a given thing now um and it it seems like that kind of flexibility is really like the a great thing yeah absolutely um i wanted to ask actually i'll start with thomas on this next question um i wanted to ask what advice you would all give uh, someone wanting to start out on this industry just one piece of advice one sentence that you would you would say to a youngling looking to start out or not even a young one necessarily someone who wants to break in i think that the biggest advice i genuinely have is just uh, don't be a dick like the only reason i'm here with solace one way is because i reached out to the like accessibility community and they very kindly gave you some help about improving it and then the reason i got a publisher is because that person tweeted it and the publisher saw it and that wouldn't have happened if i was you know, rude to people and it wasn't someone I wanted to work with. I, I wasn't someone they wanted to work with. And it's similarly to like Stephen and James, the people I worked with. We went at the game jam and we made the game because we were nice to each other. We wanted to work to each other. And it's such a small industry that people hear if you're not someone nice to work with. Like it gets around surprisingly quickly. That's something I've realized in the last couple of years. So just being nice and sharing other people's stuff and being someone people want to work with, I think is just the most important thing. 100% agree. What about you, Henry? What little piece of advice would you give someone wanting to start out? The, the only thing that I have on top of that, I guess, would be um, just find what interests you uh, like, and follow that, absolutely. Like, there are so many different ways that you can go about doing things nowadays that I just like try and find what it is that you're passionate about because if if you're passionate about it then you are excited about it and then you can make other people excited and it's just that's a that's a good energy to have got it and finally neil your piece of advice before we go on to the q a's from the audience you know much i agree completely with tom and and, and henry like i i've always said 
games are a passion industry. I, I kind of put them up there with like film and TV and music and those things that like you really have to care and, and kind of make the effort to go into. But be prepared that you're not going to, I mean, a lot of, of younger people that kind of come into the industry and think they're going to get to, you know, tell their story and, and kind of create their dream. And a lot of the time you have to kind of, you have to grind down at the bottom. You know, you have to work five years at Ubisoft as like chief artist in charge of car doors before you're allowed to like expand that. And, you know, so just kind of come in and learn, like learn as much as you can when you can, like when you're in games, you will learn more in your first kind of like six months of working than you probably have your entire time in university is because you're going to live, you're going to fail, you're going to learn, you're going to learn from other people, you're going to pick so much up. So just like be open to learning all the time. Thank you. Okay, let's get on uh, to the audience questions. So this is from an anonymous person here. So what one piece of advice would you give a recent great games graduate? For example, what's the best way to get noticed and make their next step? Uh, so just a short piece of advice and making that next step from being a games graduate. Thomas, do you want to start? Yeah, I think finishing things and making things like Everyone thinks that I think Neil was inferring this. Their first game is going to be make the millions, and that just doesn't happen. So it's like, oh, it's very rare. So just making stuff and finishing stuff and putting stuff out there, and you learn so much just by finishing a project and by getting out there and getting feedback that it's just so valuable. And you never know which one is going to capture people's imagination and which one's going to take off. Neil, would you agree with that? Anything to add? Yeah, 100%. I think that when I'm kind of reviewing CVs of people that are applying, like it's always, I always look at what else they've done, like what they do. They're not just their coursework, but, you know, have they finished any small projects, have done game jams, any of that kind of stuff. Like I like to see their personality. I like to see their ability to finish something, you know, that that becomes their portfolio. And it's different for each discipline. And our artist, okay, I want to see a great art station, but a designer, I want to see those interesting projects that they've managed to finish and those interesting ideas. And Henry, want to add anything else? There is, is really important. I mean, that's what uh, we did and just try and show as many people your, your things as possible. Um, and that will just test your net as wide as you can, I guess, is the, is the advice in a nutshell. All right, thanks, guys. I hope that answered your question. Thank you. The next question I have here from the uh, from the audience here is, do you have any advice on what can help your game stand out in the market? Now, this is a good question because the the market and even the, the indie market is huge. It's, it's There's so many things out there. Neil, how would you answer this? How can you stand out? I don't, I don't think any of us, you know, if we had that answer, we'd all be doing it. But um, it's... It's a difficult thing, but I always say that um, in a market that's so big now, like there's so many games out there, so much stuff being released. It used to be that um, game budgets were huge and you had to kind of play the field. You had to kind of broaden out as much as possible and appeal to every demographic that you could because those were sales. Now when the market is so big, I think you can target. I think you can actually go niche and you can find your niche and sell to your niche. And if you can do that, like you identify who you want to play your games, you can find those people. There's a community for them. There will be hundreds of communities. There's a hundred Reddit subs about that specific thing. If you're making a game that does that, like find those people, market to your people. Don't just stick out there and hope for the best. Good advice. What about you, Henry? You got anything to add to that? No, I think um, 
I mean, with Fogs, we just went for bright colors, and that's um, <laughs> it was it was surprisingly powerful to see at like events back when those were a thing. Was just the big bright booths in the, uh, amongst the sea of very similar colors. So that that is that's all I really have for it. <laughs> like double-ended dog. That's that's the double-ended dog community is huge right now. So Henry really like caught on to something. Uh, Thomas, what about you? Got anything to add? Like, I really agree with Neil that I think you're much better, especially when you're a smaller developer, to make something that you want to play that's kind of a bit weird and a bit unique because there's so many... Everyone's always chasing a trend and nobody... Those don't work because the people are already playing the game that started the trend. So you need to try and find something new and a bit unique and normally something that has a bit of you or your team in it. Um, and... The bit that always inspired me was one of the designers on Mirror's Edge said they always wanted every screenshot from Mirror's Edge to immediately look like Mirror's Edge. And I think that's also really true as well. There's so many like subgenres with pixel art or low poly now. It's figuring out kind of what, if someone sees a screenshot without your key art on it, do they know it's from your game? And if you do that, then you're kind of already ahead of so many games. But if they then understand what game they're getting before they buy it, you're much more likely to have a really passionate group of people whereas if they buy your game didn't know what it was they're more likely to be disappointed as well good answers guys i'm just going to direct this one to neil um how has releasing a game on apple arcade been okay and do you find the subscription model is a better model than releasing a free to play or on paid download neil do you want to answer that sure um it's apple arcade i think is still still kind of in its infancy um we were a launch game for apple arcade which was was kind of difficult they were still working out some of their rules but they were really supportive they're really nice but um we wanted we saw an opportunity to basically do the episodic thing because episodic games have a massive fall off because people just stop buying them midway through and people don't want to spend money on you know going through these small kind of episodic chunks like it's quite rare for episodic games to do well we saw a subscription model where you're you've already paid for it really like we saw that as a good opportunity this is you know this is releasing an episode of a tv show every every week on netflix or whatever so we took that kind of that step to try that um i personally prefer to releasing a game like a, a free-to-play game just because you don't have to be i guess so i don't know mercenary with your monetization you know, you don't really have to hit people so hard with your paid ads and your your kind of microtransactions. Apple Arcade just allows you to kind of step past all of that and just try and put a good game out there. There's lessons. There's, we learned a lot of lessons from doing it. Like there's a lot of those techniques that all those other studios have learned from those microtransactions keep people playing in good ways and bad ways. When you just release a straight up game, game comes out, people play it, they don't ever go back to it. There's kind of there's differences with how much money you can make on those things but we were we were happy to do it and really liked what apple offer with apple arcade it's a cool service like i don't think enough people know how many good games are actually on that service thank you neil this one's for thomas next um you mentioned about the accessibility uh being a big part of the design stage for solas 128 with the colors etc is this something game developers often consider at the design stage uh <laughs> historically i don't think as much as they should have done but that is definitely changing um i think with solace 128 it was considered probably a lot earlier than it is in most games just because 
one of my original design challenges was uh, because I do visualization stuff in my day job, like, can we play with color, but in a way that you colorblind players can play? So it was one of my real kind of core motivations. So it was from the very ground up. But I think what we've really seen in the last couple of years, especially in the AAA space, I think they finally caught up to the indie devs because the indie devs have been doing accessibility with games like Celeste and um, that sort of kind of ilk on the really hardcore platformers. A lot of them have been doing accessibility for a few years and now all the AAA companies, like Forza just came out, I think with um, sign language interpreters built into it. And there's been huge improvements in like the Marvel Spider-Man games and stuff. So I think now the industry's waking up that it's really, really important. And honestly, it's about time, but I do think in a lot of cases, it needs to be considered a lot earlier than it is because if you design from the ground up knowing which accessibility things you're going to put in, they're easier to integrate. Whereas if you've already made certain design choices, so for example, if you've chosen really small fonts that affects your whole UI, it's really then difficult to add that in later when you realize there's a problem. So I think it's getting a lot better and it's really good to see it's getting a lot better. Um, but I fully encourage you just go talk, talk to some people in the community. Like we actually had a specific bunch of people who came in and tried the game and gave really useful feedback. One of them, it was the first game she's ever given feedback on. So she's dead excited it's been nominated. I think she's more excited than me, honestly, in some ways. <laughs> so, and they're all really friendly and we'll, they want to help because they want to play, they want more games to play. Um, we've only got time for one or two more questions. So let's try and fire through them as fast as possible. We've got one here from Matthew Tomlinson. Thank you for your question, Matthew. Uh, Matthew says, uh, what would you say is in your opinion, the most important aspect of applying to games jobs? Is it CV, portfolio, creating something unique for the application? He says, I'm 30 years old. I'm trying to get into the games industry. I'm finding it difficult to break through. We'd love some advice. Um, Henry, let's start with you, please. What would you say? Short, sharp answer. To be honest, I don't know is the answer. I have just, uh, I have uh, stumbled my way into this without uh, going much. And we um, are not uh, we don't look at many cvs or anything like that so i don't exactly know how to uh, make them stand out uh what about neil do you have any advice for matthew um I sh i'm gonna cover the name on this i just got a cv in that uh, someone made uh, a game boy game uh as their cv and it's like oh. got like a an actual like game boy cartridge in it with like a qr code that you scan and if you take it is he's made a game boy game of his life and you go through and like talk to all these people and they're just like oh yeah i know that guy like he did this and it's one of the best cvs i've ever seen in like 20 years but um i don't expect everyone to do that that's probably like over <laughs> over over naming i uh, it really matters to tailor your cv like it really genuinely matters i get so many cvs from people that are like hey i love insert game company name here kind of thing um it also depends on what discipline you are if you're an artist like make sure your art station looks amazing like make sure the stuff you want is on the top level of your art station and it's not buried down i see so many people that you have to click to like go through seven more images and stuff get it up front if it's design same thing like have a website where i can see your stuff like let your personality speak as much as possible um coders i don't know i'm not a coder i don't know like how to how to tell you that but um if it's a creative position, make sure that your creativity shows. Make sure you do a, a decent cover letter that like says specifically why you want to work at the company. I know that a lot of people don't necessarily have a passion for that working at any company they can get a job at, but find the good in it and, and kind of let them know you've actually paid attention and done some research. 
And finally, Thomas, do you want to add anything to that? Any advice for Matthew? Well, I guess in some ways I'm going to undermine Blazing Griffin here by saying, like, you don't have to apply to the games industry if you're really passionate to make games, both Henry and myself. We just went and made the game we wanted to make, right? And there are there are so many more routes than going into the traditional games industry than there ever has been because it's it's never been easier to make a game with, you know, Unity or Unreal or Bitly or any of these other tools. So if there's something you really want to make, go make it, go do it in your, in your spare time, and that will then also be a really good thing to show uh, as part of a portfolio piece later on as well. So yeah, just wanted to re represent the indie in the indie dev uh, from that direction as well, I guess. Some of these questions are great. Unfortunately, we don't have time to answer them all, which I knew would be what would happen. Um, but for those who didn't get their question answered, make sure you go find these guys online. And I'm sure they'd be happy to answer any questions if you find them on the social media, as, uh, as our parents go just slide into their DMs and all that stuff that the kids say these days. So go find them and make sure that you ask them questions online. Um, guys, you've been absolutely wonderful. Um, I'd like to uh, thank the speakers very, very much. Lovely Thomas, Henry and Neil for giving up their time and sharing their wise, wise knowledge with us and really interesting stories behind their games and uh, the experiences to uh, today. Thank you very, very much to the audience for all your insightful questions. Um, and thank you very much for listening. You can watch the 2021 BAFTA Awards ceremony on the 20th of November at 4.30pm on BAFTA Scotland's social channels. So I hope we've enjoyed our, the discussion. I hope you guys have enjoyed it at home. Uh, please do join the conversation on BAFTA Scotland social channels. And I'd like to say thank you very much for joining us today. You're all wonderful and I will see you again soon. Thank you very much, you guys. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us and remember you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.